Hey, MedTechers, Tom Salemi here. Thank you for joining us on the MedTech Talk podcast. Our guest today is Dr. John Stevens. John Stevens is the CEO of a very cool company called HeartFlow. HeartFlow has a uh, diagnostic tool that is saving lives and saving money, and we'll get into how physicians and payers are responding that to that. John Stevens is also an MD. We'll talk a bit about his background and how he found his way at the helm of a MedTech Finally, HeartFlow raised $240 million for a Series A recently. We talked a bit about that. What does it take to raise that much capital? Before we get into this conversation, though, I did want to remind you, the MedTech Conference is happening on May 31st. Hope you will sign up. You have until March 31st to get our standard rate, which is $1,195. It's a lot less than our full rate, so I suggest if you're going to attend the MedTech Conference, and I really, really recommend you do. Um, please do sign up soon. Go to medtechconference.com. We're updating the agenda almost daily, and I've got a lot of great speakers and a lot of great topics that we're covering, and we'll continue to add more. Now, let's get into this conversation with Dr. John Stevens, the CEO of HeartFlow. Well, Dr. John Stevens, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have news like the uh, news that HeartFlow reported uh, earlier this month, well, in, in February. By the time people listen to this, it might be March, but uh, you raised a, uh, a very sizable Series E financing of $240 million. And I want to get into that uh, in a bit and, and to find out a bit more about HeartFlow. But I do like to start these conversations just uh, learning about the, uh, the people of MedTech. And uh, I'd like to know a bit how you came to uh, to running a company. I know how you found your way into MedTech. You're, uh, you're a heart surgeon, correct? And that, uh, that uh, is a, a, that's correct. a quick that's, way into MedTech. But, uh, that's correct. How did you make that transference from, uh, from practicing medicine to running a company? First of all, I never would have predicted, had I you know, forecast my career at the beginning of my training uh, as a physician and surgeon. Um, so probably first and most importantly, I love being a surgeon. I love taking care of patients. Uh, I worked with remarkable, talented colleagues. I had the privilege of, uh, of I think, working in among the most uh, talented and um, committed group of people in the world, uh, taking care of patients. But also at Stanford, it is a unique environment that I think is uh, ir- irreproducible if you look across the globe, at the ability to interface with these talented folks across disciplines. That is the core, I think, of what facilitated my transition into this. They're certainly trying to reproduce that, I think, with all the Stanford Biodesign uh, uh, exports of the Biodesign model going on out there across the country and across the globe. But uh, what was uh, what was your point of uh, decision from moving from uh, cl- being a clinician to uh, to starting a company? Well, I started a few companies. Uh, I was involved with a few before I I decided to leave medicine, um, and uh, and really it was the it was while I was uh, a junior faculty member at Stanford, um, loving but being deeply committed to that job and the time that consumes to be a junior faculty member at a major uh, heart center, uh, and also having uh, being the CTO and founder of, a, at that time, a publicly traded company in the you know, minimally invasive cardiac surgery space. 
uh, trying to combine those two things and do both really well, I thought was just an impossibility and also live. <laughs> Honestly, it just wasn't compatible with life to be an entrepreneur, be a CTO of a company and, uh, and be a, uh, you know, at the top of your game as a as a congenital and uh, adult heart surgeon. So, what was uh, what do you count as your your first success? You were a uh, you were the CTO and and the founder of Hardport, which of course uh, is very well known and was acquired by J and J, I guess seventeen years ago or so. Yeah, uh, was that sort of the the one that got you hooked, or were you already hooked at that point? I was probably uh, that that certainly was the one that really transformed my. Uh, understanding and brought me deep into into what the possibilities were to improve the delivery of healthcare. Uh, I, I just interacted with so many extraordinarily talented people and physicians across the world and engineers, and I, I just saw the other side that there was a way to deliver care it, it, more than the one-on-one that I did as a surgeon. And I really got excited about that possibility to improve and change care for more patients than I could do as a surgeon, you know, doing one at a time. And as much as that matters and I loved it, I also saw the value to society and to patients and the excitement for me personally to do it on a wider and more broad basis. So did you uh, ever uh, contemplate going into venture capital, or were you always an operations person? Was that always where you, where you wanted to be? I really uh, didn't see myself you know, sitting on 10 boards and being the one who wasn't in the middle of the, or in the thick of things. Maybe that just isn't my expertise, but it has never been my passion. My passion and you know, what really gets me excited is having a role in actually making things happen and uh, helping to drive the transformation of care. That, to me, is where the rubber meets the road and where my passion has always been. Um, I, I deeply respect the talented venture capitalists that I've worked with over the years, and there are some incredibly talented people. Uh, it's just not a job that I think I could do well or I would really uh, you know, provide a lot of value doing. I really think this is my... Uh, calling is much more intimately involved in uh, direct impact on the company and ultimately the patient. Uh, I guess being a surgeon, you would, you would by nature have to be a hands-on person. So that, that makes a great deal of sense. How did you... uh... Well said and uh, easier to understand. I think that's perfect. You said it perfectly. How did uh, let's talk a bit about uh, about HeartFlow now, uh, the, the the big newsmaker. Uh, you the company was started uh, in 2007. You came aboard in, in uh, 2010, if my data is correct. Uh, how did you find your way to uh, to HeartFlow? Uh, it's, well, it's uh, all about the people at the end of the day, isn't it? Always. Absolutely. So in, in the in the early 2010, I think it was late February. I had a friend of a friend who wanted uh, me to look at a device, a large caliber vascular closure device for things like endo, you know, endovascular grafting for aneurysms or, or aortic valve replacements through the femoral artery. And I said, you know what, I'm really not the expert here, but I know who would be. It's a guy named Chris Zarens, who at the time was the chief of vascular surgery at Stanford. And somebody, I think we joined the faculty it's not the exact same month within a month or two of each other, 
I joined as a young junior faculty member in cardiac surgery, and Chris came as the chief of vascular surgery. And frankly, I adored him from the first time we met each other. So I brought this idea to Chris, not that I was going to be personally involved, but to give my friend of a friend some direct feedback. And Chris, like in about 30 seconds, said, oh, no, no, that's not going to work. It's not the right idea. But you know what Charlie and I have done in the last few months? We have done model the coronaries using Charlie's computational methods. Now, I knew of Charlie Taylor when I was, uh, you know, at Stanford. Uh, I knew certainly of Chris when I was at Stanford and knew them both to be extraordinarily talented. But honestly, what I saw Charlie's work, you know, a decade before, I thought it was just, you know, had no relationship to reality in anything that would be clinically relevant. When I saw what they had done uh, with, a, with one patient data, I think it was one patient actually, uh, done in the U.S., where they modeled the coronary blood flow and modeled the pressure changes across the blockage in the artery, it just, frankly, uh, blew my mind. I, I thought this is, first of all, I didn't believe it could really be real. It was so extraordinary. And, uh, you know, the next three days, it was all I could think about. I, I, I don't think I hardly slept. <laughs> and it, it, I just became obsessed over the next three or four days with the idea how this technology could really revolutionize the way we take care of patients with cardiovascular disease. And I was hooked literally over the weekend. And now we'll take a quick break from this conversation to remind you again that the MedTech conference is happening on May 31st. I already told you about the standard rate expiring on March 31st, but we also have our group rates, which will save you a lot of money as well. So if you have multiple people attending, Please do sign up for the group rate. You'll have uh, you'll be able to attend for only one thousand one hundred and twenty-one dollars, and that actually is available for groups of three or more. So, I hope you'll join us at the MedTech Conference. Now, let's get back into this conversation with Dr. John Stevens of HeartFlow. So, how did you inter- how did you turn that excitement uh, into, or, or how did that excitement and that technology sort of become what we're looking at today, which is HeartFlow, which is really a, an impressive company, and uh, the HeartFlow analysis is, is, does look very cool. The website is HeartFlow.com, and there's a cool video people can see to, if they haven't already seen what uh, what you can do. Uh, it's it, it looks very Star Trek. I, I would expect to see this uh, hanging above uh, one of the, the beds in sick bay on on the Enterprise. Uh, but uh, how did the uh, exciting technology become uh, what, what we're looking at today? Uh, just, you know, uh, frankly, in healthcare, Tom, as you well know, there are no shortcuts. So we did the work that it takes to get to, 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 to deliver a first-rate product into the healthcare marketplace. And that is we, we started to transform this great technology into a product. We then spoke to regulators. Uh, I remember our first call with the FDA is there is no path to approve this kind of technology as product, but we see the importance of it and we'll work with you. It was a call I'll never forget in September of 2010 uh, with Dustin Michaels, who at the time was our head of regulatory uh, and clinical. And um, that call was like, oh my heavens, how are we going to get through this? But honestly, the FDA was an excited and um, and attractive, literally partner in helping us get through, navigate the, this, the way to get this to patients. 
I, it, my experience in the past with the FDA, honestly, was very different. I always felt like I was uh, I left the meeting feeling either bad, really bad, or horrible. It was kind of that was my spectrum of FDA meetings. Um, with with HeartFlow, it, it was the exact opposite. I have never had a meeting where I haven't left feeling invigorated, excited, and you know these guys are here to help get this technology on the marketplace and help as many patients as possible. That's what they see as their job as well as we see as our job. It was really, it's been an exciting, you know, almost whatever, eight years now, but it's been a really uh, powerful and I think constructive relationship to build the evidence, to build the technology, um, to ultimately uh, now deliver what we're delivering uh, on a daily basis to many, many patients. And I want to get into to that uh, more precisely, but I do want to just, just circle back to the original question, my, my question, which I, I think I stepped over an answer. Uh, the, the company was founded in 2007. You joined in 2010. What, what happened over those three years, and, and what ultimately brought you to, uh, to be the leader of this company? Chris and Charlie brought me to be the leader. They said, we really need you and want you. Please come do this. We need you. And I, I, I couldn't say no, honestly. That's great. I just was hooked after like i said the first three days i said okay i'm in let's go let's do it so what did we do we raised the capital we needed to raise we changed we evolved the technology from uh, uh, an r&d kind of uh, project into a commercial product and that was literally the entire time i think we've probably updated the software four dozen times um during that course of uh of time um, we've gathered, uh, we've done, spent enormous amounts of money, tens and tens of millions of dollars on clinical trials uh, to both validate what we're doing, uh, and, but also to improve what we do. Um, one of the amazing things about software that, you know, when I was a device guy with physical devices, you kind of built the device and you tweaked it every three or four or five years as minimally as possible so that you could not have to worry about inventing and new issues and new problems. In the world of software development, we're updating uh, regularly. We literally update our software today on a com in the commercial world uh, every two weeks. We're improving and updating. It, it's just, you know, the, 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 the breakthroughs in computer science, the advent of deep learning and its application into what we do, uh, the ubiquity of high-performance, hyper-secure, global cloud computing has just enabled things that we never dreamed possible even in 2010. Well, let's talk about the, the hard flow analysis tool now. You're using data from a standard CT scan. Uh, what is it you're uh, – well, let, let's walk us through the process. When is someone – uh, become when does sure. a when does a patient be become eligible to to uh, receive an analysis? How does it fit into their their treatment? Uh, perfect question, Tom. Uh, well, it starts with the physician's decision that they have a patient who they suspect might have significant coronary artery disease. So, if the physician believes that you as a patient have significant coronary artery disease, they're then left with, okay, how do I verify this? Yes or no. First, it's a kind of a binary question. Is there a disease, yes or no? And then the second part of the question is, what then do I do about it if it exists? And without question, the gold standard would be or is 
an invasive angiogram and a wire-based measurement of the pressure across the lesion, uh, either an FFR or an IFR, you know, two different ways to kind of get the same answer, which is, is that blockage functionally important for that patient? And that is what we do, but we do it derived from the data from the static CT. So the clinician makes the decision, I need to ask, answer the question in this patient. Then they say, you know what, I'm going to get a CT scan. They have a lot of options today. They can get a nuclear medicine test, stress test. They can get a stress echo, an exercise treadmill, a stress MRI scan, a stress PET scan. You know, there literally are a half dozen options. But if they get a CT scan, that does, first of all, it answers the first question with remarkable precision. Is there coronary disease? Yes or no. A normal CT scan is extraordinarily sensitive and is tremendously reassuring to the physician and the patient that, you know what, that's not the problem. But when you have disease on the coronary arteries on the CT scan, that's where we come into play. Uh, if the CT is normal, no need to send it to heart flow today. You, it's normal. You're done. But if it's abnormal, you upload the data over the web. It's first anonymized and encrypted inside the hospital or, or imaging center's firewall, uploaded into the cloud. We do our computations and, through a, and then a series of quality control checks and send back a 3D interactive report and a PDF to the clinician. That's kind of the workflow, and that's how it works today. So what is, what, uh, after patient receiving the analysis from, from hard flow, what are, uh, what are their options? It goes back to their, their physicians, and then what is decided from there? And then the physician really needs to interrogate the model and, and put together the pieces. What's the clinical history? What's the story? Is there, does the chest pain seem real? And then lay that over with this 3D interactive model and say, ah, it looks like there's a blockage that might be significant. Let's see if there's a pressure drop across that blockage. And all of that can be done in a real-time interactive model by the physician. Then the clinician can say, you know what? This patient does have coronary disease, but it doesn't look to be physiologically best served with an intervention. So I'm going to treat this patient with medical therapy, and I can do it with a high degree of confidence and a high degree of safety to know that that's happened. And, and again, that's done with data. Our, our studies and now uh, nearly nearly 20,000 patients have had the heart flow analysis. And uh, both in our published studies and in more to come, we just finished enrolling a 5,000 patient registry. Uh, the physician can rest assured uh, that if the heart flow analysis is, is suggests that the patient does not have significant blockage, those patients are very, very well served being treated medically. On the flip side, if it suggests it's positive, the probability that they're going to need an intervention as opposed to today's standard of care is more than doubled. So if they're going to go to the cath lab, they're twice as likely as the alternative pathways to actually require a stent or bypass surgery. So how is this uh, technology being received by physicians? Is it is it something that is saving them money, saving them time, or, or is it something that um, is resulting in, in fewer patients and procedures that are, that are being done? 
It's a great question. Uh, so first of all, we've been in a beta process and non-commercial until literally the beginning of 18. We wanted to take our time to understand how this worked in the workflow for the physician in many different practice patterns. What were the needs? What were the cybersecurity, privacy needs? What were the workflow requirements? Did it need to integrate to the electronic health record or the, the PAC system where the, where the CT scans might be stored? There was a whole bunch of work we've been doing over the last three, three and a half years in a beta process. In addition to that, we gathered data and real world data. So the unequivocal answer is yes, there's a lot of money saved. And yes, the patient has a better experience and the clinical outcomes are superb. So that we now know. Now, what we've seen over the last seven or eight months is the payers have seen the same data. For example, CMS issued a new uh, additional payment code on November 1st of 2017. Um, we now have from virtually zero uh, uh, insurance coverages, is coverage at the beginning of, sorry, that's the wrong word, insurance policy decisions at the beginning of 2017. And now we have, I think, over 130 million lives covered with insurance company decisions that recommend or endorse or support the use of heart flow as an alternative method for the patient care pathway. In addition to that, the guidelines of the ACC and the AHA, the consensus guidelines for stable ischemic heart disease, also suggested that using FFRCT, which is kind of our first and core product, would be a, is a viable way to get the FFR information for the delivery of good patient care. So a lot of these pieces have all come together. Another one is NICE in the UK. Came out with very robust and dramatically different standards to essentially tell the clinician, uh, in the entire NHS system, we recommend that CT scan be the test of choice. Uh, the first test, if you think you have a patient with coronary disease, and we believe that will become the standard of care across the world in the coming few years. That is remarkable to, to get uh, uh, that uh, line of, of reimbursements in, in, in place uh, prior to your commercial launch. What was that process like? How long were you having these conversations? I imagine you've been talking to them for, for a number of years. Like I said, Tom, in healthcare, there are no shortcuts. And if you try and do shortcuts, no one is well served. No one is well served. So we have been in discussions with payers for years. Our trial design has been in conjunction and in discussion with both payers and providers. Uh, and it's simply been building the data and the evidence and refining and optimizing the technology, both simultaneously, um, over the last, you know, literally eight years. But we've had a very serious market access team and effort left, led by our chief medical officer, Campbell Rogers, for almost five years now. Um, we've looked at the, the reimbursement aspect as just as important as the regulatory aspect. As you well know, if the payers don't support it, it's impossible to change care. It just, you know, the, the, the money has to be aligned, the economics have to be aligned for the doctor and the providers of care in order for things to change. So do you, well, let's talk about the, the commercial rollout, uh, which you, which you said started in 2018. What has that uh, process been like? How are you out there reaching customers? Is it through distributors? Do you have a direct sales force? What's your infrastructure like? No, it's a, we're, we are absolutely direct. Uh, we hired an extraordinarily talented uh, chief commercial officer uh, about seven or eight months ago, Mike Buck, 
who came from Cardinal Health, and before that had a long and storied career at Abbott. And Mike is leading our commercial efforts globally. And uh, so we have hired, I suspect, you know, at the end of, by the middle, uh, the third quarter of 17, we probably had five or six people supporting our beta accounts in the United States. Uh, we've probably hired 16 additional field people, maybe 18, in the last three months to begin to support a commercial launch in the United States. Do you have any sort of, uh, I know it's early, <laughs> it's only February, nearly the end of February, uh, but what sort of traction are you, are you feeling, are you uh, getting from the market? Well, I've been with a lot of customers the last few months, and it is a very exciting time because, uh, for example, in most of our beta accounts, uh, they have jumped in with both feet, even though they were losing money to use HeartFlow. They were losing money because they were losing interventional procedures that generated revenue. They were not doing alternative tests that generated revenue, and they were paying for HeartFlow that cost them money. So the level of commitment to generate a loss is really extraordinary. Now that the economics are beginning to prove that the clinician and the hospital uh, uh, not only can be made whole, but potentially even generate more revenue in the non-invasive pathway and also eliminate, you know, it's hard to think of revenue when you look at a patient who's getting an invasive procedure that in retrospect they didn't need. So if you can prevent that procedure from happening in the first place, safely and effectively. We just don't have a, a, a physician we've talked to in the world who, who would prefer to do a cath on a patient who doesn't need intervention. It just They just don't exist. They really want to do the right thing for the patient. So my, my early impressions are encouraging and exciting, and we've seen some tremendous momentum uh, in uh, both existing accounts who were in our beta program or new sites who now see the economics aligned and the abundance of data and are ready to be a part of this. And I do believe that about the, the physicians and, of course, not wanting to do uh, procedures that, that aren't necessary, but how are they and the providers made whole if they're, if they're not running these tests and, and not doing these uh, procedures? Are they saving on the other end or are they saving on expenses? It's a great question. So at the end of the day, they're saving money by the, the, the provider Reduce it. We reduce care for the provider, the payer, by a lot of money. It's by uh, primarily eliminating invasive procedures, mostly diagnostic casts that aren't needed. It also, we, we eliminate a lot of redundancy. Sometimes patients end up with one or two or three tests in order to figure out the problems that I described. Is there a coronary disease and what do I do about it? I think the, the clarity, the simplicity, and the robustness of our results have just made it more a more elegant, streamlined pathway that is better for patients. And it, if you have any risk-based payer, meaning providers that have risk-based contracts, we're truly manna from heaven because it's really better care at lower cost. If you're exclusively fee-for-service, now that the insurance companies in the U.S. and Medicare has an APC code, there's enough economic incentives that the, 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 the money works out. Um, may not be exactly the same, but it, you know, the marginal costs work out to be um, sometimes positive, sometimes neutral, 
but not like it was before where everybody lost money if they used hard flow. That, that really has changed because of the payer policies and the payer support. Um, they clearly see this as the right pathway, and so they're providing the economic alignment that allows physicians and hospitals to change their care. That's great. That's mm. been, uh, frankly, surprising. The speed and the robustness with which this has happened has really surprised, I think, all of us. It's really been, we hoped for it, but to actually see it come to fruition has been exciting. Oh, it's great to see uh, entities putting the money, their money where their mouths are. So uh, that's, that's wonderful to hear. Uh, well said. Well said. Finally, uh, and this was the news that, that brought us together, but uh, your fundraising success, you, you announced uh, the closing of a $240 million Series E uh, in February. Uh, this is on top of raising a, a $100 million nearly Series D in, in 2016 and $104 million if my if the records I've gotten off the Internet are correct, in 2014. This has been a, a well-capitalized effort. Uh, what has that been like, raising uh, that level of, of money uh, in this market where, uh, where well, there, some companies are able to find capital, others are not, but we can certainly say with certainty that... Uh, that uh, it's a it's a difficult market, or at least a lot more difficult than it used to have been raising capital for medtechs. Is it is do you is heart flow uh, seen as a medtech? Is it seen as as a, as a digital health uh, company? How are you uh, positioning this, and, and and to what do you attribute your your uh, fundraising success? Uh, well, it's it's a great question, and you're right. The, the markets have been complicated and turbulent, and you know capital can be incredibly difficult to find. We have been privileged to not have that problem. Uh, mainly, it's because of the technology and the data and the people that are part of the team. Uh, I, you know, our technology truly is uh, as, as extraordinary. It just is extraordinary. The potential to transform care in tens of millions of people's lives who are currently undergoing testing around the world, it, 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 it's becoming clear uh, to, to most that this is going to be the inevitable pathway that is best for patients. And uh, that's what the investors have seen. Um, a, a very, very large market, uh, a state of affairs that clearly could be improved upon, and uh, data that is overwhelming and compelling in, in providing the, the right solution for, frankly, a distressed healthcare system, you know, almost everywhere in the world. It's really the same problem around the world. We're really struggling globally to provide better care at lower cost. And to have a technology that facilitates that, especially in the leading killer in the world, is, you know, all the pieces fit together to encourage uh, investors like the ones we have who are very seasoned and wise and experienced to say and to see the opportunity before us. What has been the, uh, where have you been spending your capital primarily? Is it, is it in collecting the data and running clinical trials? Is that why this has been uh, uh, an effort that's required a lot of capital? Yeah, that's a big one. I, 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 the biggest single area has been developing and refining the technology. And then second would be clinical trials and the expense of clinical trials. Um, but Really, first and foremost, it's been optimizing and developing and refining the technology. That's where most of the dollars have gone. But we have invested heavily and almost at an unprecedented level 
or you know a, a medtech startup to to invest as much as we have, and in an ongoing basis do in in developing the clinical evidence to uh, encourage the transformation of care paths that have been in existence for literally decades. And so in order to do that, you just have to have the data. Cardiologists are, are great at looking at data. They're used and demand, demand a high bar and, and robust data. And so that's where most of our money has been spent. We now, because we're now becoming commercial, we've now begun to spend on commercial uh, efforts. Uh, we really did not do that before. We were simply supporting beta accounts and learnings. And so uh, the commercial spend is a new spend and one that we've just started over the last couple of quarters. And finally, what, uh, well, what advice would you give to, uh, to folks who are, who are looking to raise funds? What uh, strategies and, and tactics did you find uh, to be successful? There are no shortcuts. Gather the data, build the technology, and uh, in my view, optimally, if you can provide better care at lower cost and have the data to back it up in an important market, that's where we have to go as you know, entrepreneurs in medical technology. It's simply where we have to go. We've got to figure out how to provide better care at lower cost. And I am convinced, based on my experience and now uh, three decades as an entrepreneur in this space, that there are hundreds or even thousands of, of extraordinarily talented people who will make this happen. We, we will see extraordinary transformations in healthcare in the coming years, I'm convinced. I believe you're right. And uh, this is uh, certainly a great part of that story. So, John Stevens, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Tom, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. And that's a wrap, MedTechers. Thanks so much, Dr. John Stevens, for joining us on the MedTech Talk podcast. A real pleasure to talk to you and to learn about heart flow. We look forward to much success in the future. MedTech Talk podcast listeners, of course, please do help us out if you could. Give us a ranking on iTunes. Tell your friends about the podcast. Subscribe about the podcast so we can send future podcasts right to your listening device. Finally, reach out to me directly. I am on Twitter at MedTechTom. You can also find us at MedTechTalk. And you can reach me by email. I love getting emails. Tom at healthagy.com. That's the word health, followed by the letters E-G-Y.com. Also, don't forget the MedTech Conference is happening on May 31st. Go to medtechconference.com. Register before March 31st to get the uh, standard rate, which is much, much lower than our full price. And uh, also check out our group rate while you're there. And uh, we'll continue to update that agenda almost daily. So keep, uh, keep refreshing and keep checking. And please do join us in Minneapolis.